What's up, everyone? Welcome to The Awakened Catholic Show. I am your host, Nick Del Torre. Today's guest is a very special man. He's doing some really cool work with actually someone else that is here on Awakened Catholic, Father Jeff Walker, who's on the men's show. Deacon Dan is with us today, and he works with Father Jeff Walker at St. Thomas More University Parish, which is the university parish for Bowling Green State University. They're doing a lot of important work out there, and I actually used to work there myself, but we're going to get into that right after this. Welcome back to The Awakened Catholic Show, everyone. Before we begin, I want to let you know how you can be a part of what makes all of this possible. By visiting awakencatholic.org slash donate, you could become a member of the Awakened Nation by making a monthly contribution, even you know as small as the price of a cup of coffee a week. Or if you're someone that is like, why would I only want to give a cup of coffee a week to an incredible ministry that's doing amazing things for the kingdom of God and transforming hearts? Well, then you're welcome to give more. But if all you can do is a cup of coffee a week, by all means, help us out with a cup of coffee a week because it makes a big difference. Uh, secondly, I would like to let you know that we have got a new Awakened Catholic app. That's right. The new Awakened Catholic app is new and improved, and it's available in the App Store and in the Play Store, and uh, you can search for it there, or you can go to theawakenedapp.io, and you'll get links to the App Store and Play Store uh, versions of it. It's got incredible community features. It's the best way to watch or listen to uh, all of the Awakened Catholic shows, including this one. And uh, all right, that's enough of that. Make sure to check out the Awakened theawakenapp.io or just search for it in the App Store or Play Store and you can join us in conversations there. Also, in the app, there are like unique discussion forums uh, for each of the shows. So if you're interested in interacting with me directly and commenting on specifically the things that you uh, hear or see in this show or maybe recommending future episodes, you can do that in the discussion group for The Awakened Catholic Show on the new Awakened Catholic app. So check that out, uh, and you can do that with all of the shows on Awakened Catholic. Okay, now on to our esteemed guest, Deacon Dan. Welcome to the Awakened Catholic Show. Couldn't be more excited to talk to you, man. So you're working at a parish now with a pastor uh, who is uh, has been uh, a dear friend of mine for many years, and it's a parish—sorry, actually, that pastor, Father Jeff Walker, and I were actually in high school together. I should also mention that. Um, but— also, I used to work at the parish that you're both at now, St. Thomas More University Parish. I used to be the, the music director there. Uh, so, yeah, um, tell us about yourself. Uh, how did you come to be a deacon? Tell, just give us the whole kind of bird's eye picture. Yeah, well, I, um, I should go back to Father Jeff and I actually have a little bit of a history, too, because when he went through his pastoral year, he was at St. Rose, and that's my home parish. It's from St. Rose in Perrysburg. Awesome. And um, so that's where I first got to know him. And then when he was for, first ordained, um, he was at St. Rose as well. So I got to know him well there while I was going through deacon formation. And in fact, when he was studying uh, at the NAC in Rome, uh, we went over and visited him there. In fact, while well, we were over there to visit Rome anyway, right? And he was there and, and gave us personal tours, showed us all the best restaurants and all kinds of things. So um, when he was sent to St. Tom's, it was a natural fit because we've been working together and, and known each other for years. That's awesome. Um, so uh, I was ordained three and a half years ago in September of 2017. And uh, I think my, my journey toward becoming a deacon started in about, I actually can trace it back to the summer of 1999. 
uh, when I started reading um, some work by Thomas Merton uh, and others that just started making me think a little bit about spirituality and where I am and where I should be going and how I might be able to serve the church better. Um, but the funny thing is, then it took me, you know, 18 years from that point until ordination to finally uh, cross the line and get to where I am today. Um, but uh, on the day I was ordained, Bishop Thomas said, I'm sending you to Bowling Green. And I kind of went, well, I'm kind of not surprised. I've been teaching at BGSU. That's my full-time life. That's perfect. Uh, I've been a professor at BGSU for 27 years. And um, I'd wandered over to St. Thomas from time to time and had various contacts with with uh, different programs and so forth. So uh, it was a natural for me to do that. So the students tease me a little bit and they say, I teach on one side of the street and preach on the other yeah. side. And that's pretty much what I do. That's awesome. And how interesting too, you know, um, Thomas Merton easily confused uh, by, you know, as being St. Thomas, because he's, he's not a canonized saint, but St. Thomas More University Parish has a big room in it called the Merton Room. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of an interesting, like when I first visited St. Thomas, I was a little bit jarred and confused by, wait, what, what Thomas are we talking about here? Um, but how cool is it that uh, Thomas, not St. Thomas, Thomas Merton uh, was someone whose writings and teachings, um, you know, led you into this journey and uh, and that you've got, you're at a parish now that has uh, a room dedicated to him. And I have to say, like, what I learned about Thomas Merton uh, earlier on in my journey, I was just uh, so overwhelmed by the beauty of the language that he uses. And um, I, just, I love Thomas Merton's writings. I think he's fantastic. So uh, I feel you. I'm, I'm there with you. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we were waiting for uh, miracles that will prove to us that Merton should be declared a, a saint someday. Yeah. And of course, his cause hasn't been brought up yet, but I'm sure it will be uh, at some point. And, uh, but for me, I mean, I will certainly credit him. If there's any miracle in this, I credit him with bringing me into the fold of, of mm. um, getting on fire to become a deacon because um, it really started with reading Seeds of Contemplation, um, which was just an amazing book. And it went from there. Um, and my wife, in that first year when I read that book, uh, she's the one that encouraged me to go to Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky to take a retreat. Wow. Um, and so I went down there. I didn't even know. I actually didn't know who Thomas Burton was. I had no idea that he had been in Kentucky. I didn't I didn't know anything about him. I just read the book. My, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law had given it to me as a gift. Uh, this is great. Um, so I went down there and the rest is kind of history. I go back every year to Gethsemane for a five-day silent retreat. Uh, I've had two spiritual directors down there that I meet with, both of whom were uh, directees of Thomas Merton. Um, in fact, one of them was his confessor, um, and the other, he was his spiritual director. And so I, I, you know, I meet with them every year, and, and they give me some amazing insights, and they, they actually can give me enough in, in uh, you know, a couple of hours to chew on all year long. So yeah. um, that's near and dear to my heart, the Trappist Order and the and Gethsemane Abbey. That's beautiful. So, so you were uh, kind of led into the beauty of that. And uh, what was it specifically, though, that told you, like, I, I, I want, I might need to be a deacon. Like, what was that that moment or that thing that kind of led you in that direction? Yeah. So they they talk about how deacon formation, like uh, formation for priesthood, is uh, a discernment process. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I went to see our pastor at the time uh, that I that I felt like maybe I was being called. Um, and we kind of talked about it. And I said, I'm not really sure about this. And he said, you know, if you had come in here and said, I really want to be a deacon, I would have told you to go away uh, because we don't want people who come in and say, I want to be a deacon. We have people who are saying, I think God might be calling me and I need some time to discern that. Um, and for me, you know, the discernment process um, and the formation process for a deacon is, is five years, a kind of four years of sort of formal study. But the first year is an inquiry year where you're doing various testing and stuff like that. Um, and for me, it was more than halfway through my fourth year 
when I realized I was definitely being called. Because mm. I really opened myself up to, I knew there was no scandal if I walked away, uh, but I also knew that I, I, I had to make sure I was being called. So I don't know if I can put my finger on a particular moment, but I do remember um, after having read Merton's books and after having met with the Trappist for a few years, I started to think, yeah, I think there's, there's a ministry in this for me that would put together all of these uh, skills that God's been developing me, in me all these years. And, and I do remember the moment. I remember uh, my wife and I in the spring of 2016, uh, I taught abroad in uh, England for a semester for BGSU. We take a group of 15 education students over there every spring, except for the last two years, thanks pandemic. Um, but we would take 15 students over and one faculty member goes with them and teaches both our students and the British students. And so they asked me to go that semester. And my wife came over, she spent three months with me and we toured all over Western Europe. We, we, you know, we were the, the typical tourists where I would teach Monday through Thursday and we'd jump on a plane on Friday and fly into you know, Rome for the weekend or something. And, and um, uh, we went to Lourdes and um, while at Lourdes, we spent the day there at the grotto, we prayed, we were at mass, so forth. And uh, that evening, um, we were standing actually at the grotto at Lourdes. The water was sprinkling down on our heads from the from the, uh, the you know spring there. Wow! And uh, we went back to have dinner, and we were sitting at the dinner table. And I told Anne, "I'm not discerning anymore. <laughs> I just figured this out. God is definitely calling me, and this is the point where I'm going to cross from discernment into preparing myself for this ministry because wow. I, this is." I'm being called. And it was at Lourdes that night. It was in the spring of 2016 and I never looked back. That is so beautiful. I love that. I actually had the opportunity to visit Lourdes. I mentioned this in my in my last episode as well. It, it is powerful there. I mean, there is real power there. And um, I love hearing the testimony that you just shared uh, because, you know, a lot of people talk about Lourdes in the context of healing miracles and stuff, but really like Man, there's there's all kinds of power like that. What you just said about that direction in, in your discernment and the clarity, um, that that is not insignificant. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely true. And I remember um, the last day that we were at Lourdes. You know, I went to confession, uh, and I remember talking to the priest there, and, and I was sharing with him some of what was going on those last couple of days. And he said to me, "You know, that's the best gift." Our Lady could have given you for this visit. That's why she called you here this week. Mm. Is she wanted you to be assured that God is calling you, and that's what you're going to leave Lourdes with that gift. Wow. Um, and it still makes my hair stand on end whenever I think about that because it really was a, a, a moving opportunity for us. Gosh. We visited Fatima also. I loved Fatima. Mm -hmm. um, I love Portugal in general. But um, those opportunities that semester were amazing. But but Lourdes was the moment yeah. that I can. I want to mention, uh, now that we're on this topic of pilgrimages, that if you didn't know already, uh, either you, know, you, Deacon Dan, or the listeners or viewers, we are actually taking uh, an Awakened Catholic pilgrimage to the Holy Lands later this year uh, from November 26th through December 6th. It's an 11-day pilgrimage. Um, it's uh, pretty much all-inclusive, all three meals, hotels, airport, uh, airplane. I don't, you don't pay to be at an airport, but anyways. Um, yeah, super excited about this trip. I've always wanted to go to the Holy Lands. And I, I too, I've been, like you were saying, I've been to uh, uh, Fatima in Portugal. I've been to Lisbon in Portugal. I've been to Our Lady of Lourdes. Uh, yeah, I've been to Lourdes, France. Um, and just these, these pilgrimages have such 
potency of, of the, uh, you know, I think largely the disposition shift that happens when you are going on pilgrimage is a big part of why these pilgrimages work. It's not like there's explicitly, you know, some magical barrier you pass through when you're entering a, you know, powerful holy site. Uh, but a lot of it is your interior disposition that changes, you know, kind of like when you're meditating or whatever, but then there is something very powerful about these places. Um, coupled with that. And so I, I want to highly encourage you, um, this Holy Land trip, like what we're aiming to do with it is we want to be transformed by the Gospels in the sense that we're going to the places depicted in the Gospels. And if the Gospels are transformative on paper, you bet your bippy they're going to be transformative on land. I don't know. Do people say, I bet your bippy? I feel like I've heard that before from someone. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Colleen, my producer's laughing at me in the background. Um all right, moving on. So, Deacon Dan, you're uh, you got this clarity at Lords, and you, you tell your wife at dinner, like, I'm I'm ready, I'm ready to do this. Um, was there any uh, up until that point? Was there any like anything that was drawing you away from it? Like, was it whether fear or or just kind of, I don't know. What what is that like? Yeah, I think that there is there is definitely fear. Um, and there is kind of a feeling of unworthiness, like, who am I to actually do this? Um, and I, I am absolutely convinced that that's the devil trying to push you away from the ministry. Mm. Uh, I have I have talked to so many other deacons and priests about this same emotion that you go through in the um, few months, years before ordination, that there is very clearly um, a force out there that's trying to push you out. That's saying, you know, you, you don't really want to do this. Uh, you're not really ready for it. You're, you're not prepared enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not smart enough. You know, and I, it, there's a lot of those feelings that go on that kind of um, push back. And I remember talking to Father James, my spiritual director at Gethsemane, about that at one point. And I said, you know, I, um, and I used the word unworthy. And he said, you know, none of us are worthy. None mm -hmm. of us. Um, but don't let that hold you back because that's exactly what attracts us to it. I mean, I read in a book one time, um, it was uh, written by another one of the monks down there who, uh, uh, Brother Paul, and he, he had written about um, how people will say, you know, you, you might, or they'll say, they'll say to a person, you might want to consider uh, entering the monastery and becoming a monk. And their response would be, I'm not holy enough. I, I can't do that. Right. And he said, what they don't understand is we don't become monks because we're holy. We become monks to become holy. Right. You know, that's the whole point. Um, and that's exactly what it is. That's why I started to realize that I'm not being called to be a deacon because I'm this, you know, perfect person that's got all of these. I'm being called to be a deacon because that's going to bring me closer to Christ. It's going to yeah. help me to bring other people closer to Christ. But that's the whole point. So, of course, we're going to feel the, the the fear and the unworthiness, and that's very common, and I, I felt it for sure. Yeah, and so shortly after your ordination, you hear from uh, Bishop Daniel Thomas, you're going to Bowling Green, and you're like, I'm already in Bowling Green, so that's perfect. So what, what were you teaching? What are you teaching at Bowling Green State University? So I'm a professor of math education. Uh, I'm the guy who prepares people to be math teachers. Mm. Um, so I, I actually wear a lot of different hats. Uh, I've been there long enough now that I'm kind of half administrative, half faculty. So I, I usually teach just one class per semester. Um, so I teach like math teaching methods courses. 
Uh, I've been a teacher my whole career. My undergraduate degree was in math and science uh, education. And so I've been a middle school and high school math and science teacher. Uh, I was an administrator in a high school, a consultant um, for the diocese. I've written a number of books and I've taught at the university. So I've kind of like done all of these different jobs always in the education field. Um, so now I, I direct a, a program uh, for uh, a scholarship program for people going into math and science teaching. And then I also coordinate the secondary education program at the university. I have about seven, eight hundred students that I oversee. Interesting. And when you're uh, in your classes, well, obviously, in, in recent past, it's been very different with COVID. And I'm sure at least a majority of your classes are being done virtually, if not all. What, what is that ratio roughly right now? Well, university-wide, they're broken into different categories. Now, you've got classes where you have to be in-person, classes where they're hybrid, where you're in-person sometime and at home some, classes that are fully remote but synchronous. So you got class Monday, Wednesday at 930, but it's on the computer, um, and classes that are remote asynchronous, where you can kind of do the work anytime this week that you get to it type of deal. Uh, I have been teaching remotely, synchronously since last March. I, I walked out of my office on March 11th of 2020, and I have not been back oh since. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I have not been back since. I, uh, I Literally, I, I was on campus on a Saturday for an hour for an event um, in August, and that's the only time I've actually even crossed the street onto campus since March 11th of That's of so crazy. So, um, all right, so when you're in your class, now, so what I was going to ask you before, but it's super probably irrelevant uh, based on the fact that you're teaching virtually because, you know, virtually it's probably, I would imagine, a lot harder to cultivate relationships with the students and um, interact on a more personal level. So what I would have asked you is, you know, does it ever come up or how, how does that look, the fact that you're a deacon serving the students on this campus while you're being a professor? Um, but I, I would presume that when you're teaching virtually that that's almost a non-factor because you're not interacting on the same type of personal level. Yeah, it doesn't come up as much uh, teaching virtually, but it certainly is something that has been true for three years. Um, I mean, there there is kind of like this almost a blurred line, if you will, between being a, a college professor and being a deacon, it's, it's inevitable. So, um, you know, my email signature from the university says Deacon Dan Breyer, you know, it doesn't just say Dr. Dan Breyer, because that's part of my identity It's who I am. I love that. Um, you know, but, but it's also, um, for my students, I have a, a number of them who I teach on campus who are student parishioners at St. Tom's. And it truly is a gift and, and, and very humbling to teach them in a class Monday and Wednesday on campus, and then on Sunday morning to see them in the pews and I'm preaching to those same students. Wow. And they see both sides and I see them inside a class and outside a class. And what's funny is that I think when when you're you know the, the whole idea of the, the charism of a deacon is to be out there in the world right you're mm -hmm. interacting with people in your job and your and, and so forth and so for me uh, I I learned very quickly that that I can't like draw a line and say okay I'm I'm going to be a, a professor until five o'clock and then I'll flip a switch and I'll become a deacon at six o'clock it, it doesn't work that way it's it's who you are it, both of them professor and deacon are, are both who I am. Um, so in answer to your question, it's not unusual for me to be in my, my office on campus and have a student knock on the door and poke their head in and say, do you have a minute? I've got a question about my faith. Mm. 
Mm. Wow. And you know what? Some of the times the students that come in are not Catholic, by the way. They are students that just have a question. They're, they're, they're shaky on their faith or something, and they just come in and close the door, and they just let go. Sometimes they cry. Um, and But the funny thing is, there are times when I'm at St. Tom's in my office doing something and somebody knocks on the door and sticks their head in the door and says, I, I got a problem math. on my math homework. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give me a help on number 23? And they sit down and I'm doing math. You know, and that's exactly the point. I mean, yeah. they, there's, there is no line between the two that you, you are, you are what you are. So yes, I've had that experience many times with, with, uh, students, uh, either that I directly teach in my classes or that just know who I am and pop by and, and want to ask a question. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself uh, as when you're wearing, you know, the teacher hat, even though we just talked about that, we don't, we don't, you know, draw lines between these, but when you're teaching, maybe I'll just say that, um, and you're grading assignments or, 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 or tests or whatever, do you ever find yourself like, um, to, with any type of internal conflict about, uh, the dynamic of, a, you know, attributing a, a bad grade or something when it's someone that, is maybe also a parishioner or someone that you're walking with spiritually, has that ever come up for you as like a rub? And and does that maybe draw you, not to put words in your mouth, because I haven't even heard what you might have to say about this, but I would imagine that it might draw you into a more charitable dynamic as the instructor, where it's like, and not just with that student, but that it might remind you like, hey, here's how I should be a teacher for all people. Does that is it resonate at all? Yeah, it does. And I don't... Uh... Uh, I don't differentiate between, you know, the student who's Catholic and who isn't and who's coming to mass and who isn't and so forth. But I think on a more on a more global level, because I, I, I do, that's one place where I do have to, you know, I have to be careful too. Yeah. Uh, I am a university professor on a public, in a public university campus. So I can't get up in my math class and start talking about St. Tom's and the Catholic faith. That's not my job. That's well, you not could be, you might get fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, I mean, it just, it's just not appropriate, right? Yeah. Um, so this is where it comes down to how, um, what you said about being kind of charitable and how you live your life and what people see in you by virtue of who you are. Um, so I just, I remember when I was going through deacon formation, um, it was our, our last, not our current dean, but the dean that came before her, um, when, cause I was in formation when he was there. And I remember I was in his office one day asking some questions about my students. And I remember him sort of stopping in the middle of the conversation. He said, Dan, I'll tell you this. He said, if I didn't know that you were in formation to become a deacon, I would have known it anyway. Because over the last couple of years, I have seen you taking so much more of a pastoral approach wow. to what you do with your students than just being a professor. I see it happening. That's exactly like, what I was trying to get at with my yeah, question. It, it hit me between the eyes. That's exactly what it is. You, you just you start to, to think of your students in a different way as the human beings, as the creation of God that they are. And, and it's a different way of approaching teaching in general. I love that so much. Yeah, it makes me think about, you know, gosh, how many of our interactions or our responses to things in general, you know, even if you're not a math instructor, like, God bless her. I was just on a trip with my goddaughter, uh, who's young, uh, just over being a toddler, I think. And um, I, I got these headphones for Christmas, and she made them disappear. And I felt very frustrated and and i was like okay she's my goddaughter like <laughs> i can't i can't lose my cookies with her 
And and as I thought about that more, it's like I can't lose my cookies at all. Like why why would I let headphones make me get all bent out of shape? You know, sure, are they expensive? Or was it a gift? Was it special? Was would I really appreciate using them? Um, but but it's like you know, in this moment, I, I need to realize like this this person is more important, and um, how I behave is such a witness to like everything about me as a person, about the things that I consign myself to in the faith, like I'm bearing witness through my reactions to things and the ways that I handle things. And so, yeah, I mean, that just is true for all of us about everything. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. That was precisely what I was trying to get at with my question, but I just couldn't find the right words for it. Um, well, you know, and having, having said that, Nick, yeah. I think the other thing is that we still have to hold them accountable. And I think that that's a part of it too, that, you know, Jesus holds us accountable for certain oh, behaviors yes. that we're supposed to have. And so I, just the other, just the other day, this week, uh, I kind of let one of my student parishioners who is also a student on campus have it for having missed a deadline. You know, and I didn't pull back from that and say, well, since she's a parishioner and I know she's a good student and so forth, I'm not going to No, I mean, she still has to be held accountable for having missed a deadline. And so, yeah. uh, but the way that I presented it <laughs> to her, I'm sure was much more charitable and much more of like a shepherd than I might have done five or 10 years ago. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for adding that. That's, that's awesome. All right, Deacon Brer, before we move any further, I'm going to take you through the Kerygma speed round. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Question number one, who is Jesus to you? All right. So I heard this said one time about God in general, but for me, it just fits perfectly for Jesus. Okay. That Jesus is the person who, when you've been on a good vacation and you've taken a couple hundred pictures on your phone, he will sit next to you and not only look at the pictures, but enjoy it. Right. So we've all had the experience of being stuck with somebody who's showing you a bunch of pictures from a trip that they took where you've never been there. It's not your memory and you're trying to be nice to them. (laughs) But, you know, um, and, and the fact is that Jesus is a person who is concerned about and cares about everything about me and about you, everything. And so if I sat down on the couch with those pictures, he would genuinely say, what's in that picture? Why was that important to you? Where did you go? How did it touch you? Because he cares. And I think that that, for me, that's the image of my mind of this person who unconditionally cares completely for me and everything that I do, everything that I think, and wants to lead me toward eternity with him. Oh my goodness. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, he, he cares about everything that matters to us, uh, even when we when we feel like others might not care about it or whatever. That's beautiful. I love that. All right, question number two. What's your elevator pitch for a life with this loving man of Jesus? Jesus was, is fully human and fully divine. And I think that the fully human thing means a lot. Jesus went through all of the emotions that we go through. He Mm -hmm. felt joy. He felt sadness. He watched one of his best friends, Lazarus, die. He himself was crucified, went through all of that pain. He went to wedding receptions. He had friends. He hung out. He laughed. He got angry. So any opportunity that we have in our lives where we're facing something and need a friend at our side who gets it and has been there, he's the one. He's my go-to person. And I will oftentimes start a prayer by saying, Jesus, I know you felt this fear. I know you went through this, or I know that you felt this anger. I remember when you when the story of you taking the whips and, and chasing people out of the temple. I know you can identify with this. And for me, having a spiritual 
uh, link like that to God who understands having been fully human, what we're going through um, means a lot. That's beautiful. I love that. What a great reflection. And I definitely hope to uh, implement that myself. Question number three, what's your elevator pitch for specifically a life with Jesus as a Catholic? So I think that the, this I, is the I, elevator I think going the, up, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when, when I think of a of a uh, uh, of a life with with Christ in the church, I think of the Catholic Church as having been the church that was established by Christ. And I look at its two thousand year history, and I think about okay, we split with the Orthodox in ten fifty four, and the Protestant Reformation happened in the in the sixteenth century. And since the Protestant Reformation, that Protestant Reformation has resulted in 33,000 different denominations. But the Catholic Church has never changed. We have been a Catholic Church with that unity, one apostolic church for 2,000 years. What can be better than that? Wow. That's, I agree. Bottom line. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> very, Preaching very beautifully put. <laughs> yeah, well, you are preaching to the choir, but hey, maybe someone listening is like, oh, I never thought of it that way. So, no, that's that's fantastic. All right, Deacon Dan, um, that was a great execution on the Kerygma speed round. Not an easy speed round in the world of speed rounds, but you did it. You nailed it. So you. <clears throat> you may or may not be familiar, Deacon Dan, that um, our, our new president, he was signing some executive orders. I think he, he knocked out about 23 of them in the first uh, day or two in office. And uh, But there is a little-known 24th executive order. And that 24th executive order, he was saying, no more Catholic weird stuff segment. But you know what? Here at Awaken Catholic, we say, no, you're not going to tell us what to do. Let's hit it, Colleen. Catholic weird stuff. Why do they do the things that they do? Let's learn some Catholic weird All right, so today we're going to be talking about the weird stuff that Catholics do with dead people's body parts. We have these things called relics. There's first-degree relics, second-degree relics, third-degree relics. Fourth, no, I don't think there's fourth-degree relics, but um, anyways, maybe there is. Deacon Dan will illuminate us, but I just want to begin this Catholic weird stuff segment with uh, the recitation of two verses of Scripture, two brief verses that make up one passage for you today. Uh, here it comes at your ears. This is uh, from the book of Acts of the Apostles. Uh, is that a, that's a weird way to phrase that. This, this is brought to you from the, from the, by the Acts of the, anyways, we're just going to get into it. It's, it's in the Acts of the Apostles uh, book of the Bible. Chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. Here we go. And God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's essentially the teaching. The, the idea, I mean, and it's entirely supported here in Scripture. Um, the, so this would be like second and third class relics, because uh, first class relics are an actual body part, whether it's a piece of bone or, or a bit of hair. Um, second degree and third degree relics are things. So the second degree relic is like something that belonged to a saint. Um, the third degree relic is a thing that the saint touched, or, or I'm sure Deacon Dan will put it into much better words than I can here, but it's saying here that Paul did such great things, that God did such great things through Paul, 
um, extraordinary miracles that handkerchiefs and aprons were carried away from Paul's body to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So this is not some weird medieval Roman Catholic gimmick that we came up with because we like to come up with stuff. No, we don't like to come up with stuff. And it is not that. It's much older than that. It's this much older than that. It's from the Bible. Uh, and there are even examples in scripture, uh, even kind of crazier stuff tying, you know, more like into the first degree relic, uh, uh, where, for example, uh, again, in the New Testament, people would like get healed by being in the shadow of one of, uh, one of the apostles. Um, just, just crazy stuff. Deacon Dan, fill in the blanks. What am I missing? Help me, help me to understand relics more than I do right now. Well, Nick, I think you're right there because um, there are lots of different classes, categories of relics, and you're right. There's sort of that first-degree relic is the is the bone fragment or the body of a, of a saint or some holy person. Um, second would be something that they touched. Maybe it was a uh, a piece of clothing um, or, or you know a pen that they wrote with or something. And then the third category is something that is touched to something that the saint touched or the saint's okay. relic is himself. So uh, an example of that would be that if you go to the St. John Paul II um, Museum and Center in Washington, D.C., there is a small vial of his blood that is displayed there at the altar. And there's a, a, a set of, of holy cards with his picture on them. And you can take one of the holy cards and go up and kneel and put that holy card to the vial of blood. And essentially the holy card then becomes uh, sort of that third degree relic because it's been touched to the blood of the that saint. That is so cool. Yeah. 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 And so, the people that, that raise the objection, like, why not just pray to Jesus, you know, and like, we have power in the Holy Spirit and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but, but like, why do you have a problem with scripture? <laughs> you know, like, why not make the world more colorful? You know, like God, God created an amazing world and, and the, such a, a richness of, of faith and tradition and, and like, why not just embrace all of it? I, I just find it so beautiful. And there is power in it, even as depicted in the passage I read. Yeah, there definitely is power in it. So, I mean, you hit the, the key passage there. We see uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, the people touching things to Paul and then healing with those objects. Uh, we see people who are, you know, St. Peter uh, passes by them and their sh his shadow alone heals them. Um, and even looking in the Gospels, what happens to the woman with the hemorrhage? She walks oh, yes. up and touches the cloak of Jesus and she's healed. He didn't have to say anything to her. Just touching his clothing was enough. So there's there's something to be said for that when you're kind of in the proximity of whether it be a body part or a second degree kind of, uh, of relic uh, of a saint, that it just brings you a little bit of closeness to somebody who you know, we know, is very close to God right now. And I always ask people in things like RCIA, you know, who's closer to God right now, you and me or Peter? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, St. Peter died and he's with he's in heaven. He's with God. He's right there. So I don't think anything, you know, most people can relate to even non-Catholics certainly can relate to the idea that let's suppose I'm going to have a surgery and I'm going to say to somebody, hey, I'm having a surgery next week. Will you pray for me? And I say, yeah, sure, I'll pray for you. Well, what could possibly be wrong with me praying to St. Stephen? 
mm-hmm. and asking him to pray for me when I'm having surgery. Because I, I I'm very close to St. Stephen for a number of reasons. But why not? Because, again, who's closer to St. Stephen or to God right now, St. Stephen or my next door neighbor? You know, so it makes perfect sense. And we believe in this this communion of saints that once you die, your soul never dies. So now that soul is united with God. And if I pray to St. Stephen now, he's with God and he can advocate for me and he can be uh, a helper for me uh, with these things that I'm asking for. So what happens is that the proximity to these relics of the saints in a very special way draws us closer to the saint and therefore draws us closer to God through that saint. A common misconception of non-Catholics that we're praying to the saints. We're right. actually praying through the saints, right? We're asking them for intercession. Yeah. So, um, you know, when when I was in Rome, um, and we've we've had the the good fortune of going back to Rome a number of times over the years. I love it there. I could go back to Rome once a year for the rest of my life and still feel like I never saw it. Uh, there's just so much, and everything that you see. If you go back and see it a second and third and fourth time, it feels new every time. But I- examples would be that when you're in Rome you can uh, visit the skull of St. Agnes. Now that sounds scary, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not scary because St. Agnes was 12 years old when she was martyred for her faith because she was hanging on to her virginity and wouldn't allow anybody to to violate her. And so she was killed in in the streets of Rome and in the church right next to where she was killed, there is a, an altar that has her skull on display above it. And when you go to pray there and you think, wow, think of how this, this girl and how her faith literally changed the world. And, and so there's something that just sort of brings you close to this person who is with God now by, by uh, praying at that spot. You can also, um, at the Church of Santa Croce, you can see the um, finger of St. Thomas. And so you've got this bone of a forefinger, which is sort of like, well, is that gross? No, it's not. That's the forefinger that went into Jesus' side after the resurrection. And now you can you can actually they venerate that and you can kind of stand and say, wow, I'm that close to St. Thomas who had his finger in the side of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, there's another it, church in Rome that has a uh, the foot of St. Mary Magdalene. And again, wow. some people might say, why, why would you venerate a foot? You know what? That was the first foot to enter the empty tomb after Jesus was resurrected. Oh she was the gosh. first one in. Yeah. So you can you can see that. So again, on the surface, it looks like these are sort of gross things, you know. But reality is, well, think of what you're actually physically getting close to and mm-hmm. how close that can bring you to God. Yeah, and, and that's a great point because... You know, the next, the, like the follow up question I would have to imagine for a non Catholic Christian would be, but like, why does the closeness matter? Um, you know, where we are uh, spiritual beings and we want to be close to God. Well, to say that we're spiritual beings is not untrue, but to say that we're spiritual beings and that the physical world is bad and that like our bodies are irrelevant, that's kind of verging on a Gnostic heresy. Um, and it's this idea that like, you know, spirit good, body bad, and and you know that. But but the the truth in it is that we, not in the heresy, the truth about the situation is that um, we are both a, a body and spirit composite. Like our our very being is both spiritual and physical. You know, and you have to ask yourself you know, for the non Catholic Christian who would be critical of this teaching, or at least maybe curious, uh, would just be like, what's what's the difference between someone praying for you? five feet away from you like this versus praying over you 
laying their hands on you and praying over you in a non-COVID era, maybe. Uh, but but there is a difference, and you need to kind of wrestle with that question. What is the difference? Why is it different to me to be prayed over with laying on of hands versus from a distance? And if it's not different, then don't do it. If it's not different, stop laying hands on people and praying over them. But it is different, and that's why you're going to keep doing it. And we have to we have to uh, be willing to admit that difference, even if we can't put our finger on what it is. We have to allow it to be a mystery of the faith. But but part of that difference is that we are in being physical and spiritual, like we need to engage our bodies too. Um, it's it's an it's a kind of an expanded expression of that prayer, um, and it's beautiful and it, and it's a powerful thing and. Uh, it's it's got a rich tradition um, to to pray over people and 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 then so if that's the case if there's a difference between just praying from afar and laying hands and and you know we have to acknowledge that even though we can't put our finger on it well then there must too be a difference uh, if if you if that you know with that relic like we could we could ask a saint to pray for us all the way in heaven and and whatever but like man there's a reason that the early church would rush to the, the 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 dying corpse of a martyr uh, to soak up the blood that they were bleeding because they so revered the body of that martyr, and and they wanted to cherish the the falling blood of that martyr. Uh, they wanted to to maintain that to retain that. Um, like this is an ancient thing, and and it's a powerful thing, and it goes all the way into the New Testament. There are even some examples in the Old Testament of things like this. It's a very deeply faithful, deeply Christian, and deeply good thing, uh, and in no way is it somehow uh, some bizarre, exclusive Roman Catholic thing that was developed in the medieval ages. Uh, do you have any, any additional thoughts, Deacon? I do. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right that it's it's got to do with with proximity. There's something about being close to somebody that you're almost feeling the vibrations from that person. Mm. And, you know, we are body and soul. Our bodies are the are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So even once we die and the soul goes to heaven, the, the body was still a temple of that Holy Spirit. There's still something there to revere. And I guess an, a, another modern day example I can think of is think of how many funerals you've been to where when the person just before the end of the funeral, people will walk by and place their hand on the coffin mm -hmm. or they'll come up for a final visit at the funeral home and just touch the hand of the person or touch. The, why are we getting close and touching the casket? Because there's something about being close to that loved one. And so my, my feeling, I remember we were in Padua. We went to the, to the tomb of, of uh, St. Anthony at, pa at Padua. Uh, we actually went to the Easter Vigil Mass there. But, you know, with the way that the tomb is situated is kind of in the center of church. And you walk over and you put your hand right on his tomb. And there's something about you lay it that close. You think that's the body of that man. Think of all of the good things that he did. There's something very beautiful and mm -hmm. very spiritual about that proximity to the, to the body. Yeah. And why do we visit the graves of loved ones that have passed? I mm -hmm. mean, it's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My mother always said, when I die, don't come and visit me at the cemetery because I'm not there. My soul is with God. And I get that. My mom passed away years ago. But you know what? I still go to the cemetery all the time. And I'm sure she's, she's got to be smiling about that. Oh, yeah. But the fact is, there is something to be said for being right there close to the grave in the proximity of that person who uh, who uh, lived and that we're, we're reflecting on and, and, and praying with. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me for uh, that Catholic Weird Stuff segment, Deacon Dan and viewers and listeners. Uh, so now that we've gotten to the bottom 
of that issue and that there is no now that there's no more confusion in the world about catholic relics thanks to the awakened catholic show um we're going to dive into uh some of the work that you're doing there at the university you know we, we got into it a little bit i love uh the idea that you were sharing earlier about you know that you're not putting lines or, or putting into silos your role as a, a math teacher and role as a, a deacon and spiritual uh like leader in that community. Uh, but let's get into some of the things. So, you know, some of what you're doing, I'm familiar with in terms of my experience, you know, a lot of those things were the same when I was there. Um, but I'd love to hear about like what, what specifically you're doing to reach out to the souls, uh, and bodies there on campus, uh, <laughs> at Bowling Green State University. Cause I think that a lot of people assume People that are university age, it's a lost cause. They're going to experiment. They're going to, you know, kind of go out and be crazy now that they're finally away from their parents. Um, what have you seen and, and what are the areas of need and, and what are the areas of potential, I guess, that, that people are casting aside too easily? I think it's easy to sell short um, a student, whether they be in high school or in college, and just say, well, they do have other things to worry about, and they're certainly not concerned about their faith or the church or whatever. And that's just not true. There are a lot of students who are on pretty serious spiritual journeys, trying to figure out where they fit in and, and what their faith means to them, and what does what does it look like from this point forward, and, and, and how do I pray, and all those kinds of questions that come up. Uh, I think I was blessed in throughout my career, God clearly prepared me for what I'm supposed to be doing now. Mm. Um, I think that if I look back on my life, one of my favorite um, Bible passages is from Exodus when when um, Moses asks God, can I, can I look you in the face? And God says, no, you can't see my face. You'll only be able to see me from behind. And I think that's what happens sometimes. We look behind us and we can find where God was and we may not see him today. I look behind and I see, wow, uh, I've been a teacher for 40 years. I have a degree in counseling and I'm licensed to be a counselor. How did all those pieces start to come into play here at a university parish later on? Well, the experience that I have at, U at BGSU and as a teacher and as a counselor, as an administrator, all of those pieces start to come together in, in this ministry. And so what I try to do is to put to, to use those gifts that God's given me in, in different ways in the parish. So the, the, the gift of being able to teach, if I can teach math and math education on campus, surely I can teach RCIA um, back at, at, the, at the parish and, and bring people into the church. Or if I can speak in front of a crowd by giving a, a presentation at a national or an international conference, surely I can get up in front of my parish and do uh, a, a retreat talk or, or preach a homily or whatever it happens to be. Um, if I can counsel students who are having personal issues back on campus, I can certainly counsel somebody who is looking for spiritual direction um, at, a, at, a, at a parish. And so those are some of the pieces that I get most heavily involved with, are the things that, that allow me to put my educational skills that I've developed in that secular world into play in, in ministry. Um, and so Every time that I sit down, for example, to write an article for the bulletin or to write an article for a newsletter, well, I've been writing articles and books my entire career. That's what they pay me to do. <laughs> so I get to do it for fun at the parish. Now I can sit down and, and, and compose this article, this letter, and whatever it happens to be, um, because that's what I feel comfortable doing. So um, those are the, the kind of outreaches. I think uh, certainly one of my uh, primary passions at St. Tom's has been uh, with the RCIA process. 
Um, I absolutely love watching people who are um, exploring and interested in coming into the Catholic Church. And, um, you know, we every year we have people in the various categories, them, those who have not been catechized, have never been baptized, and they're looking for something bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got people who have been baptized, uh, but have never been confirmed, and they've never received First Communion. We have others who have been receiving communion, but they were never confirmed. Uh, and there are all kinds of different stages and being able to get together with those groups of people and start talking about the faith. Uh, I learn a lot from them. Um, I enjoy working with the university students. We have uh, eight students right now in RCIA. Um, we had 11 at this time last year, but thanks again to the pandemic, our numbers are a little lower. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition to those, we also obviously have all the students who are serving as sponsors plus team members. So we've got this sort of faith group, if you will, of about 20 people or so that meet weekly and talk about uh, various things in the church and just being able to shepherd that forward and see what are their questions? What, what are they wrestling with and what are they interested in? Um, so RCA is a great way to do that. And for me, that has spun off then into doing some spiritual direction for my students uh, on campus. So, um, or at, at the university camp or the parish campus. Um, and so, for example, we put on uh, a retreat each year, the Koinonia retreat, a community building retreat. Um, and when the students are part of that retreat, I oftentimes give a couple of talks as part of it. And oftentimes students will say, hey, I really want to pick your brain about I'm having issues with this and this. Can we meet up sometime? And so I've ended up doing some spiritual direction for students. And again, that feels an awful lot like the counseling that I did that I have mm -hmm. a degree in. And it's just it's what I was trained to do. That's you know? amazing. So uh, I can sit down one on one and the students will say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think about this? And what are your views on it? Is there something in scripture that maybe I should be reading because I've been dealing with? And you try to put all of that together, you know, all of that experience with classroom and teaching and and study of the Bible and being Catholic and being a counselor, you know, put all that together. So whatever I can do to try to support the spiritual lives of those students, I'm going to do it. And and again, going back to my original point, I do do think we that, that society as a whole sells these college students short and says they're not really interested they're too shallow they're too bit yeah they're not that shallow they're deep they've got a lot of important questions and and uh, as one person i used to teach with when i first started my career put it to me if you don't answer the question who will mm -hmm. and i think a lot of times the buck stops with us they ask the question they need an answer yeah that's 100 percent true and that happened to me as well when i was in college i was asking questions I wasn't getting answers to, and I ended up leaving faith altogether. Um, so I can attest to that uh, wholeheartedly. Um, so in you mentioned that uh, in RCIA, like you, you kind of uh, help address some of the issues that that young people are having. Um, well, anyone going through RCIA, but like in particular, you're ministering to young people there. Um, is there anything you've noticed as like a consistent theme uh, that kind of carries across for? the younger generation of people that are discerning entering the church? Yeah, I think in, in many cases, um, one sort of theme that I've seen is they're, they're comparing, if you will, the Catholic faith to non-denominational churches. I think we've seen such a proliferation of the mega churches and the rock band churches and things like mm -hmm. that that the students are looking at and they're saying, this is what they do. And here's what you do as Catholics. What makes you different? Why do you do what you do? 
Um, and I think that there's sort of like that cultural piece in there, almost like some students are, are sort of shopping for a church, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and they're not sure, you know, maybe they belonged to this particular denomination when they were at home and then they come to college and they recognize that there are non-denominational options, but their best friend is actually going to that Catholic church and they're wondering. And so I think there's, there's a lot of questions that sen- seem to center on, but they tell us this, what do you guys say? Or I was at church with my friend last weekend, and at that they said this, but you guys don't. Why do you believe? And so we're we're kind of trying to um, really be sort of apologetics, if you will, and, mm-hmm. and be able to say this is why we believe what we believe. Here's where we are on this. Um, and I think there's a lot of that that comparing, if you will, of, of different mm-hmm. faiths and different options they have available to them. And if anyone's watching or listening that doesn't know what the term apologetics means, uh, or if you were assuming that it meant the wrong thing, could you explain to us apologetics uh, in the context of what you were describing? Yeah, I mean, apologetics kind of refers to being able to defend and explain the faith. And yeah, so you're not like literally saying, I'm sorry about the faith. You're saying. Right, it's not, I'm sorry. <laughs> so I, a good example of that would be the Bible passage that, that you read about uh, relics. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody were to say, well, why why do Catholics um, revere these relics? Well, we're going to go back to the Bible. We'll explain it to you. We'll give you a rationale for why we believe that's important. And so that's what I'm in the business of doing is trying to help students understand why do we do what we do? Why is this important? Um, and, and, you know, what symbols do we use in, 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 the, in the liturgy or whatever, and what do they mean to explain where things come from? That's great. Yeah, beautiful. So, uh, so that was, um, I want to kind of bring a similar question then to what, what are some of the struggles you see consistently across, you know, even the students who are Catholic, like what are they wrestling with? Maybe, maybe even specific to this weird COVID era that we're in in the political atmosphere, like wh- what have you seen in your spiritual direction and, and in your interactions with the students is kind of a consistent theme, if there is one uh, in that demographic? Well, I, I think that certainly over the last couple of years and, and uh, more so because of the presidential election, mm-hmm. that, that political concerns have certainly come to play. I've had students either email or stop in to see me just to say, you know, I'm wrestling with who to vote for. Um, because on one hand, I believe this. And on the other hand, I believe that. And where does the church stand? And, um, you know, those kind of things, because they're hearing, they're, they're hearing people in the news. And I think it can be like right now, it can be very confusing to Catholics because we have the second Catholic president in history, but we have a Catholic president who is not necessarily holding to Catholic principles in all areas of his life. And so what do we do about that? I mean, so is that the image of Catholic that we want to put out there? And and if not, then how do we explain that he's saying he's Catholic, but he doesn't really believe everything Catholics believe? Mm -hmm. Those kind of questions about sort of consistency of what do we believe? Why do we believe it Mm -hmm. um, tend to come up a lot? Well, then the additional confusion of how our church leaders are are handling or not handling that specific example. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. it sends a message, you know, action or inaction sends a message. Uh, so that's challenging. That's difficult. Yeah, that's really, I mean, it's, it's also though, like, I'm encouraged by young people who can vocalize that they're wrestling with something, you know, um, because it's so easy, I think, in, in the culture to, to like, just kind of, yeah, I'm not going to think about that stuff, you know, but like they're, they're wrestling and they're processing. And to me, I would take that any day over someone that is just kind of like, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to, you know, keep going along. Uh, Cause I think that if you're wrestling with something and if you're, you're truly seeking truth, um, it will, 
get you there and and it'll be a much sturdier as long as as long as you really pursued that as long as you're really authentically pursuing truth and you're not just kind of seeking out confirmation bias and whatever uh you know it, it'll really get you to the right place uh i think that it's too easy to be afraid of letting people ask questions um but we we have to because otherwise we're asking people to just kind of be robots and not really believe something for themselves so yeah. yeah, and I love those questions when they come up. And so I will have like, even within the last year or so, I've had students come in and say things like the stem of the question is a professor in one of my classes said this. Mm. What do you think about that? Did you, <laughs> do we agree with that? You know, and then, okay, what was the, you know, um, or they'll start off by saying, is a professor allowed to say this? Because mm -hmm. my so-and-so said that, you know, uh, and another one is, um, and I've actually had this a couple of times in the last last year or two of a student coming in and saying something really profound like, I have been dating the same guy for eight years now, and he's not Catholic. And now I'm starting to think, I don't think I can spend the rest of my life with somebody who's not Catholic. <laughs> So what do I do? Do we yeah. just break up or do we, you know, and all of a sudden we're talking about relate. And I think that's a great question yeah. because they're wrestling with the idea. They're starting to think about marriage beyond college mm -hmm. and they're saying, wow, could I ever be married to somebody who's not Catholic? What would that look like in my life? And they want to talk about that. They want to wrestle with it and good for them. That's a great question to be asking. Don't ask that question after you're married, <laughs> right. ask it now. <laughs> so yeah. it's great. Those are the kind of questions that, that are on their mind. They're, they're thinking deep. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and what a great thing to, uh, to be in the position that you're in, that you have the opportunity to like help, uh, these young people in, in the parts of their journey that they are. Um, what a blessing to be used that way by the Lord. It absolutely is. I mean, I, I'm, I'm humbled by it and I'm blessed very much, uh, in that ministry. So other than being a professor and being a counselor and being a deacon, and being a spiritual director, you're also a musician. Yes. How how do you integrate that in your current life as a as a person doing things? Well, I do a number of things. Um, so I I started playing guitar when I was seven years old. Wow. I, I took lessons for about two years, and my guitar teacher told my parents, Dan will never be able to play guitar. His fingers are too short. He has no <laughs> sense of rhythm. Tell him to stop. <laughs> so they did. I mean, they pulled me out of lessons, and that was it uh, for about a year until I tried a different music teacher, and it took off, and I've had a guitar in my hand ever since. And I picked up bass and a little bit of piano and stuff along the way. Um, so I have always enjoyed music and it's actually been a, an important part of my life. My son and I were just reflecting on that the other night. I have three sons. Uh, their names are John, Mark, and Luke. Um, we do not have a Matthew. <laughs> I wonder where you got those from. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. But we always said if we had a fourth son, we'd name him like Clyde or something to make people wonder what happened. But, um, so, but John is my oldest and I, I taught him to play guitar. And, um, and we were talking the other night about this and he said, dad, it's just, I was just looking back and think about the influence that music has had in your entire life. Mm. And it has been, uh, I started playing guitar at mass when I was in seventh and eighth grade. Wow. And by the time I was, um, in my twenties, I was playing at St. Rose. I actually, uh, played guitar and piano at the five o'clock mass on Sundays for 27 years. Wow. Um, and it was funny because when Father uh, Arch Thomas came to St. Rose, and I think it was 1990, 
um, he called me. He had only been to the parish for about a month. It's a great story. He called me and said, uh, Dan, the, the, the woman who plays guitar at the five o'clock mass is leaving. She's getting married and moving to New England. Can you cover for just a few weeks for me um, until I get my feet on the ground as the new pastor? And I said, sure, I can help you with that. And 27 years and three <laughs> pastors later, I finally retired from it. And the only reason I let it go was because I, I was ordained a deacon and I can't do both. Um, but I certainly wasn't ready to let go of music as a ministry because throughout my life, I've taught guitar lessons. I played in several different bands. I played by myself. I recorded music. And so um, th that's kind of the neat thing about my ministry at St. Tom's mm -hmm. that I have worked that music in. Um, I have played uh, pieces like before mass um, as kind of prelude music. Um, I have played guitar and sung at uh, retreats and um for we have an advent and, and a lenten day of reflection at the parish and i'll play and sing at those events when we do the coin and year retreats and so i i try whenever i can work music in because i think that music speaks to our hearts in different ways sometimes than just speaking to somebody you know in with words can do mm -hmm. um and so in the process i also write a lot of music and i have a, a home studio and i record music and it had been a number of years since since uh um recording my last album i think i've got i've done seven albums and but they've all been you know kind of homegrown family projects and yeah. i you know give them to kids and family and friends and so forth that's impressive and, though seven albums that's that's yeah. not that's not nothing yeah, it, it takes a lot of time for yeah. sure. And but, but my kids have been teasing me because it has been years since I did the last one. And I actually this last year, um, because of I think because of COVID and, the, and, and, and being shut in the house, uh, I was able to, to squirrel away a little bit more time and energy for it. And I actually pulled out some tracks that I recorded years ago and never finished mm. and then re-recorded some and put things on top of and so forth and finally uh, finished a, a new album uh, at christmas time and uh, it's it's one of the things that just keeps me um alive and 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 thinking outside of the box to create music and and create um that kind of sound well i'm very excited to say that right here we're gonna have an exclusive live performance of one of your songs, the song Noise Without a Sound. But before we do that, where can people find your music? Is it streaming online or what? Right now, no. Okay. So this is actually something that I've been playing around with because I'd like to be able to get it online somewhere. I think we'll, we will probably be setting up like a YouTube channel so people can access it. Uh, right now, I literally have them in a OneDrive file, and I've sent access to the to the files to friends and family. Okay. Um, but but we are planning to to put something up more formally at YouTube where people can access it. Okay, great. Um, do you know when you're planning on doing that? Um, soon, um, hopefully <laughs> okay. within the next few weeks. I you know time goes by. I also told my, my kids would have an album for them soon, seven years ago, and it came in 2020. So, <laughs> but uh, no, actually it is, it is on the, on the list here. I just talked to my son about it actually the other night and he said that he would help me with it. So. Okay. Awesome. Are you on social media? Where can people find you? Um, yeah, I'm on uh, Facebook as the easiest place to find me. Okay. Awesome. And maybe just maybe viewers and listeners will get Deacon Dan to install the new Awakened Catholic app and you can find him in the community there. Uh, no pressure or anything, Deacon Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a deal to me. All right, rock on. You can find Deacon Dan on the Awakened Catholic app. You know what, Deacon Dan? We're going to make you a verified user. You're going to get the little check mark like people get on Twitter. That's what's going to happen. That would be great. All right. Well, so without further ado, this is Noise Without a Sound by Deacon Dan Brer.
heart Forever changed somehow Like a storm it's over and he's gone Leaving me to wonder how to carry on It's the end game and the starting point Time to put a stake in the ground It's the mark that never goes away Making noise without a sound The, uh, the the song "Noise Without a Sound" um, kind of sums up um, ministry as a deacon, uh, as an ordained person. Uh, I played it for a good friend of mine who's a priest, and he said, "You know, I think it's the first time I've ever heard a song about ordination." And there's a lot in there that that I could really relate to. Um, I remember when on the day of ordination, walking out of church uh, that day on the way home. And starting to, to think about, I mean, there's so much going through my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first thought was, how am I supposed to feel right now? <laughs> and then I thought, wow, that's like the opening line to a song. I got Ooh. in the car and I keyed my iPhone and I just started dictating lyrics and they just came, they flowed right out. And the wow. song was like wrote itself. Um, I, I think that that's, that's maybe in general where the Holy Spirit takes us. When, when we have that inspiration, be it through ordination, through any of the sacraments, um, receiving the Holy Eucharist, 
reconciliation, when the Holy Spirit gives us that grace, things start to flow like that. We start to think about like Jesus. We start to think the thoughts that we need to be thinking, and things tend to flow. Um, and I, I think that that's if we can continue to get people to be open to what the Spirit is is presenting them. We mm -hmm. can change the world, and 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 it's sometimes it's phenomenal how the Spirit gives us just the right words, just the right things to do when we need them. Oh, praise God! I agree. Amen. Amen to all of that. That's fantastic, and that's a great note to end this show on. Deacon Dan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Awakened Catholic Show. I'm really excited to see you on the Awakened Catholic app community. Uh, and I'm excited to see you, the viewers, the listeners on the Awaken community app. Check out Awaken Catholic on the Google Play Store or the iOS App Store uh, to join us in this community. It's also the best way to consume uh, all of the shows, and there's discussion groups for each of the shows uniquely. Um, we got You got access to the shop there where you can find merch like the shirt I'm wearing right now. Uh, Obviously, the shirt is amazing, and obviously you want it. Listen, I'm just going to put it like this. If you want to be as holy as I am, number one, you should raise the bar a little bit for your goals for yourself because that's a low bar. But number two, this shirt's not going to help you at all uh, to be holier, but at least you'll look amazing. So uh, that having been said, if you love this show and uh, any of the other shows here on Awakened Catholic or all of them, um, the work that we're doing here at Awakened Catholic, hopefully soon when this COVID business is coming to an end or at least trailing off in a small little dither. Um, I'm using a lot of words right now. Hopefully soon we'll be doing parish missions and live events like we had been once before. If you want to support the work we're doing to bring hearts to the Lord, uh, then please visit awakencatholic.org slash donate today and become a member of the Awakened Nation by making a monthly contribution. could be the size of a small cup of coffee, as the example that I used earlier, or you know what, it could be, I don't know what these cost when you buy just a can, seltzer water. What does seltzer water cost when you buy just a can? Could be that, or more, whatever the Lord, whatever the Holy Spirit is guiding you to. <sighs> All of that having been said, Deacon Dan, thanks for being with us today. Any parting words? Uh, no, thank you, Nick. I appreciate you having me on here today. It's my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to continuing to serve the diocese. I'm happy to be where I'm at, and uh, um, looking forward to uh, talking, maybe some people, some, some follow-up from today as well. Amen. Praise God. Thank you for your service as a deacon, as a math professor, uh, as just an all-around awesome guy. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, God bless.